Welcome to Acts of the Blood God, a podcast devoted to all things role-playing games. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Here I am. Uh, not even 24 hours since being called the worst dragoon ever by some kid on Final <laughs> Fantasy XIV. <laughs> it finally happened, Nadia. They finally went after you. And, I mean, how do you feel having been dragged so hard after that? I am very scandalized. <laughs> Just... It was, I'm like, just like, it, it caught between like fury and like being upset and laughing my, my ass off because it was, this, it was just such a stereotypical gamer thing to happen. And it's like, on one hand, I know the kid who said this is probably like 12 years old, but it's just so surprising because Final Fantasy XIV has always been a very, and it still is, a very welcoming community. Uh, but I just somehow signed on with the worst group ever last night. Just, they were like, shouting at each other and calling each other the the r word and just like i have never ever seen anything like it i'm like guys the the bad guy is saying they're gonna she's gonna like swallow our souls can we concentrate on that for a second please was your soul swallowed no we managed through like even though they were like taking every possible minute to to type like nasty things at each other like you're the worst tank i've ever worked with i'm gonna block you after this etc (laughs) etc Reminds me of playing Heroes of the Storm, which was so stressful and irritating that I actually stopped. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, when you play a mobile on ra- a MOBA on ranked, it oh, yeah. the ran- playing with randoms is kind of the worst experience in human history because the second that something starts to go wrong, people lose their mind and start just <laughs> saying the worst, nastiest things at you. That's a good way to describe it. People just lose their minds. Like Final Fantasy fourteen is not a hyper competitive MMORPG by any means. It's not as numbers oriented as ESO or World of Warcraft. Uh but I guess it does have its hardcores. Well it reminds me of that very old video of the guy going, More dots, more dots. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Some people just gotta get really, really hyped up about things. Like you probably like you didn't really play too many sports as a kid, right? No, I definitely didn't. Okay, because my brother played uh, softball, and you always had, like, you know, the parents were like, you know, good job, Billy, good job, and you just have the ones who are, who will, like, swear and scream, and it's ten times worse with hockey over here. Like, the term hockey mom, it's, it's like soccer mom, but with a more murderous bent. You just, you have a picture of a hyper-protective mother with a, with a sword dripping blood. Absolutely crazy, the way some people are about, like, just any sort of sport or game or anything i guess i'm just not that kind of person i don't get all you know emotional over that sort of thing well while you were being heavily abused on final fantasy 14 <laughs> i was starting up a streaming channel which seems like a good route to being abused <laughs> well that is basically one of the express ways to get there if that's what you're aiming for yeah it's been super fun though people have been really chill the chat's been really enjoyable uh, we've been playing Gundam, and let's see, what else did we play? Um, I, I played some Pokemon on Friday. I raised up a, a Dragapult. Uh, yeah, it's been a very oh, fun time. Oh, I love time. Dragapult. That's my favorite of the new uh, Pokemon. Yeah, I got a shiny one from a friend of mine. Oh, so. that's amazing. That sounds so cute. Yeah, and I saved, I stocked up all of the the, the medicine and all of the items that I needed to, so I leveled it up, and then I went and played some of the latter, and it was a good time. That does sound fun. I've been meaning to start streaming. Um, I don't really have any kind of setup that's very good, so I would just start with like you know the crappy PlayStation HUD, but it's better than nothing. 
yeah. We have actually a fairly sophisticated setup with the lighting and the green screen and a solid camera. I I feel like if you're going to stream, you should probably do it right. Uh, yeah. If you if you want to make a good impression, because there's so many channels out there. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. But I figure like I can at least get started, have a presence. People used to tune in like back when US gamers streamed regularly, like and it was my turn to stream. I usually commanded a pretty good audience, especially the time I streamed Stardew Valley and got stuck behind my cat and had to wait <laughs> for sunrise to come so I could collapse and die. Yeah, I, I seem to remember like Sebastian wouldn't move because he was stuck on the other side of the bed and he was too stoned to move because I had seen him standing in front of his bong that whole entire day. So that was that was an experience. But it was pretty funny, though. Anyway, if you want to follow the stream, go to twitch.tv slash TV. I'm streaming Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific. Nice yeah. way to end your day, hang out. Um, I'm going to play kind of a range of games. I'm playing retro games. I'm playing games that are in my backlog. Whenever I get a new game, I'll probably be playing that, uh, especially if I get it early code. So, yeah. Okay. We have a really packed podcast for you today, Nadia, <laughs> for you specifically, because we are going to be continuing the console RPG quest, and this is a meaty one. We're talking about the Nintendo DS, yes. which was a monumental system for Nintendo and for the RPG genre. There's a huge amount to talk about for this thing that went from 2004 to 2011. Wow. Man, you don't... I, I just don't see consoles with that kind of lifespan anymore. Yeah, pretty much the only one that really matches it is the PlayStation Portable and the Game Boy. Yeah, and the PlayStation Portable, I just think about Japan because it didn't really have any sort of a lifespan here. I mean, it had a, a span, maybe not a lifespan. <laughs> it had a span of days that went by. But in Japan, it was hella big... Oh, yeah, but, I, I know that much. But in, yeah, so we'll be talking about the Nintendo DS in this week's episode. If you want to follow Nadia and I on social media, I'm at the underscore Kappa. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. If you enjoy the podcast, can I recommend that you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts? We always appreciate it. It brightens our day if it's a positive review. It makes us sad if it's a negative review, so don't leave any negative reviews. <laughs> Somebody left us a negative review lately. <laughs> I don't think so. It's all been very positive, which has made me really happy. There was that one that complained that we dragged the East Coast. Did we? Well, that's right. We did, didn't we? But I live on the East Coast. Yeah, the one-star review said, I live on the East Coast. <laughs> and I was like, so does Nadia. So do I. I love it here. It's the, it's the Beast Coast. Mike and I are always repping the, the East Coast uh, in uh, the, the Slack. We also have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday, which you sub should subscribe to probably Nadia. What is this week's topic in the newsletter? Um, I just kind of took it a little easy uh, because uh, it's been uh, a difficult time for myself and a lot of us, really. And I just kind of talked about the RPGs I'm playing that I'm gravitating towards in order to feel a little bit better. Um, I talked about how I entered Stormblood on Final Fantasy XIV, uh, worst dragon in the world or not. I talked about how um, I'm playing Trails of Cold Steel 3 on the Switch because I kind of want to refresh myself for when 4 comes out. And yes, it is an excellent port. Yes, it is a perfect format for the Switch's handheld mode. No, I have no idea why we, haven't, we aren't seeing any of the other Cold Steel games on Switch, and I really, really wish we would. 
uh, caveat. I know it's probably because of rights issues. Either way, I'd really like it to happen. Um, and finally, I'm actually also playing another playthrough of Chrono Cross. I was Ooh. just on Retronauts with Jared Petty and, of course, Jeremy Parrish, and we're talking about Chrono Cross for its 20th anniversary. Is it that time? Wow. It is indeed that time. We actually had a really nice, long discussion about it. At the time of this recording, I think it's a Retronauts Patreon thing uh, exclusively, but later this week, you'll almost certainly see it. Uh, sorry, later next week, you'll you'll certainly see it on uh, the Retronauts front page as a free download. So uh, yeah, I hope you indeed look forward to that because Chrono Cross, for all its flaws, it is quite a comforting game uh, visually, sound-wise. Even it's just trying to suss out its weird story when you just want something else to think about, even if that thing makes no sense. At least it's just something to take your mind off things. I think I probably mentioned this during the PlayStation console RPG quest that Chrono Cross was my first real exposure to the Chrono series. And my main recollection of it is that time that you turn into the giant cat. Yes, I'm, and... about, I'm about to turn to the giant cat again. And the music. The music uh, ruled. Yeah, we had, like, of course, people were saying, well, did you talk about the music on the podcast? And I was like, you, you bet your butt we talked about the music. The <laughs> We actually talk a whole bunch in particular about the song that plays right before you turn into a giant cat, actually. It's when you're up against Fate, the supercomputer. And it's just it's like this really, really strange song, really haunting that's all throughout that battle. It has a xylophone. It's, you know, they made the xylophone sound great. And xylophones don't, don't inherently sound great. All right. Well, you should go check out our weekly newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday and it rounds up all of the RPG news and also has a nice little newsletter from Nadia. Okay. Let's continue on to the main topic, which is the console RPG quest for the Nintendo DS. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, this week's main topic is a continuation of the console RPG quest in which we go through every single console that ever came out, except the Philips CDI, or did we talk about that one? I don't remember. <laughs> I think we might have shunted into some, like, one of the loser topics. <laughs> <laughs> one of the loser topics. We're putting you right next to the Jaguar, and you're going to like it. <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. I don't know if there was much to talk about beyond the horrible Zeldas, but uh, we might have given a passing mention to it. But yes, we trace the history of every major console and talk about its RPG lineage. This week is a big one. It is the Nintendo DS, Nintendo's infamous third pillar, which would go on to become the core of its gaming business for a solid or close to a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, probably one of the harder decades that Nintendo had been through because of well, no, actually, it came out around the same time as the Wii-ish, but um, it was also uh, there during the, the GameCube era part of it. Nadia, what are, what's your first memory of the Nintendo DS? I seem to remember I watched the presentation where they actually unveiled it, and like, first of all, I can't even think back to a time when someone has reached into their coat and said, yeah, here's our damn system, because nowadays it's all like, whoa, here's a big slick presentation of a sexy light going over the curves. No, you can't see the whole thing yet. And just remember, I can't remember if it was... Uh, Iwata or Reggie. I think it was Reggie. He just reached into his coat pocket. Like, here's the DS. And it was like the goofiest thing in existence. Like, it was ugly. And people were like, what is this thing? 
they were intrigued. Certainly, I was intrigued, especially when I heard, oh, internet, there's an internet connection. That's actually really cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But otherwise, it was like, Nintendo, what are you doing? It was one of those Nintendo, what are you doing moments. At a, at a time period in which Nintendo was firmly in the Nintendo, what are you doing phase <laughs> coming off the, the, the Nintendo GameCube. Yes, yes. Except this time they took a risk and uh, they came out on top. Yeah, I remember the build-up to the reveal of the Nintendo DS, and it didn't make any dang sense at the time, because the Game Boy Advance was doing very well. Yes. It was the main success that Nintendo had. It wasn't as big as the Game Boy, but what is? Right. And now all of a sudden, Nintendo comes out and says, we're doing a third pillar. It's called the Nin- And it's going to have two screens. And you're like, what? Two screens? <laughs> yep. It doesn't even make any sense. And it's not a replacement for the GBA? And this was Nintendo's way of hedging their bets just in case they needed to go back to the Game Boy if the DS completely tanked. So Toru Iwata famously said this would be the moment where we rise up to heaven or sink down to hell. (laughs) I love Iwata's way he spoke. But yeah, um, even though Nintendo had and still has, of course, plenty of money in the bank, you don't want to have multiple failed consoles. That In that way lies death. I mean, maybe they failed, but I, I bet those consoles made money, at least, at the end of the day. Um, Nintendo was never a company that put itself in the red to make uh, to take these big risks that they took. They always operated very conservatively in their means. But the Nintendo DS... So everybody was making these mock-ups of kind of like the GBA, but it has another screen on top <laughs> of the clamshell. That I kind remember of thing. that, yeah. Because people couldn't imagine what it looked like, so when... Iwata pulled it out of his pocket and everybody went, okay, uh, that, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, I guess by that point we were like, okay, well, this is going to have two screens whether we like it or not. There was just one problem, Nadia. Mm-hmm. The Nintendo DS was announced around the same time as a new competitor. A new competitor yes. from Sony's or from Nintendo's arch rival. And that was the Sony PlayStation Portable, which, man... We kind of shrug it off now, but the first time we saw the PSP with that giant screen, everybody was just like, whoa, you -hmm. know? Yeah, it was definitely a whoa, RIP Nintendo moment. Yeah, it looked like a gorgeous piece of kit. It looked like a straight-up tech device, whereas Nintendo DS looked like, well, it looked like a toy. (laughs) You know, in, in classic Nintendo fashion. And this was around the year, what was it, 2000 and... Um, it was 2004. So people were really starting to get into the whole slick technology thing because I think by this time, Apple had, not its iPhone, of course, but it had like iPods and everything iPods like that. Were definitely were definitely firmly entrenched, yes. And we were not that far away from, uh, I think it was around 2005 that they created the smaller I, iPod that had the video screen on it. Yeah, the Nano. I had one of those. The Nintendo DS, it gets revealed. It has a touch screen, has all of these quirky little things that you could do on it. It had PictoChat. One of my favorite (laughs) Nintendo DS stories is supposedly a journalist uh, drew a penis in (laughs) PictoChat and another journalist went out, went up and just hit send to everybody. Yes. And it popped out of, on every single screen, including, I think, uh, maybe a Nintendo executive. They yeah, it popped out on back. Miyamoto's screen, never mind a Nintendo executive. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, uh, whoever was there said they just saw, quote unquote, Miyamoto shaking his head disappointedly. 
<laughs> and Reggie apparently was very angry and the guy got kicked out. <laughs> That's one of my favorite stories. The Nintendo DS came out in late 2004, where, at least in the U.S., it was deeply uncool. Oh, it was so uncool. When did you, did you buy a, a Nintendo DS at launch, Nadia? Not at launch. I actually, a really good friend of mine uh, gifted me one, a red one, a fat, a red fat. And uh, he gifted me Mario Kart as well, Mario Kart DS, which was a, a really great version of Mario Kart. And that and Animal Crossing is how I really kind of got introduced to the Nintendo DS. And I, I kept my fat for a very long time. I don't think I ever transitioned to the light. What? Yeah, believe it or not. I just never did. Eventually, I got a Nintendo DSi, and that was just what I used. I did not like the DS fat. It was not pretty. It was not a very pretty system. It really wasn't. That and the prototype that they showed us on that day was even worse. It had that really weird black streak down it. Though, to be fair, my impression at the time was that the DS was, if not attractive, at least functional, and it had, at the time, one of the best screens that you could get on a Nintendo handheld. And the fact that it supported GBA games via the GBA slot at the bottom was a, a real boon uh, for backwards compatibility. Uh, so even though it couldn't support Game Boy games, which was definitely a disappointment. But uh, I just remember walking around a, a GameStop looking at seeing the Nintendo DS and walking right past it because <laughs> I wanted Aww. to get Pokemon Fire Red and Leaf Green, gosh darn it. Well, yeah, that that was actually a, a probably a good purchase because the Nintendo DS, I have to admit, when it first came out, it didn't have too many games that interested me. I thought Mario, uh, New Super Mario Brothers was all right. I think I finally got interested in the DS around the time I was reading Nintendo Power because I still subscribed back then. And I saw a preview for, believe it or not, Lost in Blue. And I thought that looked really interesting. And I said, you know what? Maybe the DS has some good games after all because Nintendo Power was actually pretty good at promoting uh, the best of the best during a time when Nintendo's library was kind of eh. So ironically, I never ended up playing Lost in Blue, but I did uh, get a DS. I was always convinced that the Nintendo DS would ultimately succeed because I figured that any platform that had Pokemon was going to win. And that was just how it was. That's a good bet to hedge on. Yeah, I, I knew that Pokemon was going to come out on the DS eventually. And sure enough, Pokemon did extremely well. We'll get to that in a little bit. There's a lot of Pokemon in the Nintendo DS. Oh, there sure tell is. You. Jeremy Parrish likes to tell the story about how the DS was basically the unwanted child in the one-up office. And Aww. so he took it home over the holidays and everybody was just kind of like, eh, whatever. Aww. But Nintendo did do clever things with the, the tech. I remember one of the first real... Proofs of concept for the Nintendo DS was one of the Kirby games where you could draw the line uh, mm -hmm. where Kirby was the ball. And that was a really neat curse. game. Yeah, that was a, a really good demonstration. I think that was one of the first times, or uh, like I mentioned earlier, when people started noticing, oh, actually the DS is, is actually not a bad system to have. Because yes, Canvas Curse really showed off what you could do if you were a really creative developer. And apparently it was a good game. I never played it myself, but yeah. And I started seeing games that I had never really seen before, but really stood out to me, like Trauma Center. That was a game that just immediately stood out for its creativity, and it had better graphics than what you typically got on the GBA, and it made really good use of the DS stylus, and it was really intense to play, and it was awesome. I never got to play it, but I always wanted to, because it just looked like so crazy fun wild. 
And Elite Beat Agents. Oh, God, oh, I loved Elite Beat Agents. I loved Elite Beat Agents. That's uh, Every day I wake up and I pray for a sequel to that. It's never happening, but got to keep the faith somewhere, I suppose. I knew one of the people who worked on those games, and I constantly was like, when are you going to make another one? <laughs> the localization process on that one was very interesting, and it's to this day it causes a rift between people who are into Elite Beat Agents and people who are into Uendan. Hmm. Because ours, our emotional song part is better. No, ours is better. No, we have a dead dad. Well, we have a dead girlfriend. You know what I mean? I, I generally prefer the Owen on too, because I'd rather listen to those that music than Canned Heat. Oh, uh, that's <laughs> or Highway uh, Star. Okay, Sorry. Highway Star. I like. I like Highway Star. But Highway Star was really hard. No, Canned Heat was impossible. I got Canned so Heat mad. was so hard. Like I could barely get through that one. I barely. I I honestly turned down the sound and just did it like by visuals only and that's not me i i can usually ace rhythm games without a problem but something was just up with that song my partner was so good at elite beat agents that she beat the final song uh was it jumping jack flash jumping jack flash yeah with uh at the highest level the cheerleader level nice which means that you literally cannot make a mistake you have to basically perfect it and i that still flabbergasts me that i was she was able to do that that's pretty amazing. Oh, I'd love to have a sequel to this game. It was so great. Also, in terms of games that you didn't really see elsewhere, you started seeing games that were almost like PC ports, but they were coming on to the Nintendo DS. Uh, to wit, the Etrian Odyssey series, which really got its start in large part because of what the Nintendo DS had to offer. I did a whole retrospective about this on the re- on Retronauts. It came out and it was kind of this weird curiosity, Nadia. I think the late Andrew Fitch, uh, rest in peace, uh, really championed it and said, this is an amazing game. And it kind of got a little bit of a foothold. And now it's pretty beloved, I would say. Yeah, I was one of those people who did not pay attention at first. But as you said, Andrew started like really kind of warming up to it. And then I started paying attention when Parrish just went kind of uh, bananas over Etrian Odyssey. Mm. But I still didn't start until quite late into the series. I think I think 5 was my first, believe it or not. And I didn't expect to like it. I'm like, because I'm just not into dungeon crawlers that much. And then I'm like, wow, this is a really this is a really great thing that they've done with dungeon crawlers here. Like, I'm not the kind of person who sat there as a kid and made maps out of grid paper. But I really enjoyed mapping the realm. I enjoyed going up against the FOEs. Uh, I love the soundtrack. Holy moly, that game soundtrack is just, all the game soundtrack, it's just phenomenal. And it makes me wonder when or if we're going to hear more about Etrian Odyssey for the Switch or if it's just kind of a, eh, we couldn't make this work situation. I don't know. It seems tough. Etrian Odyssey is well-known enough and beloved enough that you would think that they would have to eventually find a way to do it. But it it just doesn't transition very neatly over to the platform, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really a shame, and I think that's a problem you get with a lot of dual-screen games, unfortunately. Um, Wonderful 101 kind of had a hard time because it was just a single-screen versus a double-screen. A lot of people complained about Super Mario Maker 2 because that was a single-screen instead of a double-screen, and it uh, might be the case with Etrian Odyssey. The original Etrian Odyssey really kicked your butt. It was not <laughs> very forgiving. Uh, you really had to grind appropriately manage your party appropriately the first level you basically walk in and you're dying it, it's, it's rough it's rough the the later etrian odyssey games are way more way nicer i want to say 
yeah, I definitely didn't feel like I was being un- like unfairly preyed upon with Etrian Odyssey 5. I just remember downloading the demo, which is a really good thing that Atlas did, giving you those big demos to download if you wanted to try it out. I remember downloading the demo, making my party, and then like I go into town and it's like, wow, this is the smoothest saxophone I've ever heard in a video game. Is this an RPG? So I moved, I, I moved to Japan in early 2006, Nadia. And it, when I arrived in Japan, the DS Lite had come out just about two months before, and it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. It was everybody was playing it in the subways in Japan, and the DS Lite was. It felt like it was like yes, this is what the DS should have looked like all along. It was sleek. It uh, was much smaller. I remember the first time I opened up that clamshell and saw the screen and it almost mm. blinded me. It was like Barney <laughs> getting the natural light in The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, you said 2006? Yes, um, early 2006. It came yeah. out in the US in summer 2006. Cause, yeah, because that was the summer. I remember going to Otakon and noticing, holy crap, everybody, every single person waiting in line for anything to open or start has a, has a DS light. And before that time, I had never really thought of the DS as a hugely, you know, a huge success. But once I saw how well the DS Lite did, uh, there was just no denying how well that system was doing. And Nintendo was releasing them in all the different colors. Yes, and all the ones, you remember the ones with like the etchings? No, I don't. Oh, so many of them. I used to be actually be About.com's guide to the Nintendo DS, quote unquote. And I used to have a compilation of the... Uh, systems that were all had like variants that had the etchings on the front with all the artwork and stuff and there were some really gorgeous ones and that was a popular page of mine. I don't know if it was much of a thing here but over in Japan everybody had these cell phone charms. Yeah. Um, And so I had multiple charms attached to my Nintendo DS. I had one. I think it was Bowser probably but yeah I remember cell phone charms being huge in you still see that they're huge in, in Japan but they don't really have a, a market here unfortunately which is too bad I, I like cell phone charms and then in late 2006 nintendo released in japan pokemon diamond and pearl Ooh, the yeah. fourth generation of pokemon which in many ways was a momentous moment for the series even though in weird ways it's a little bit forgotten it didn't have the most amazing pokedex it was mostly evolving versions of Pokemon from Red and Blue and Gold and Silver, but it had online play, which yes. was a huge deal. It introduced the global trade system. It more or less provided the foundation for Pokemon's online community to truly explode into what it is, what we know it today. And I I wouldn't say that it revived the fortunes of Pokemon in any means, but it felt like the series had kind of hit a little bit of a lull with mm-hmm. the GBA. And then because the DS was so popular, it felt like a lot of people rediscovered Pokemon with Diamond and Pearl. Yeah, I think we talked about Diamond and Pearl recently in detail in another episode. But yes, we were talking about how whether or not the demand is there for a remake. And we just we kind of decided that, as you said, Diamond and Pearl is not the strongest entry in the series as you would rank them today. But for their time, they were hugely important because... Online, again, was a, a new thing for the series, and that's obviously a big deal. And as you said, it's really the, the start of the 
the foundation of the battling community online. Yeah, and I bought it as soon as it came out in Japan, and uh, that was my the start of my run of playing Pokemon games in, in entirely in Japanese. Oh, and so I had put hundreds of hours in it by the time it came out in the U.S., which was fun because that meant that I knew it inside and out, and I could uh, either trade with people and give them really valuable and rare Pokemon or beat the crap out of them. <laughs> it actually reminds me of uh, when I did my I did the review for Sword and Shield last year. And by the time everyone came online, I had already been playing the game for a month and was like, oh, oh, you have a you have a level three Pikachu. That's nice. Uh, let me introduce you to my like level 60 Charizard. <laughs> and for a little while, I knew what winning in Pokemon was like. The problem with Pokemon Diamond and Pearl was that it was really slow. So slow. Yeah. Holy cow. Especially compared to the GBA version, like it moved at a snail's pace, and that was especially the case when you were playing online. the The letters, the text would go do 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 do. Yes. Like, oh my God! Please, did I die or not? It, was like, that battles the, would take forty five minutes? Was that the first game in the series that gave us the triple battles? Uh, maybe, probably. I don't remember. I thought that was in black and white. Okay, you might be right. It might be black and white. I just remember that because. Uh, if you look online, there's a video where someone pit like three, sorry, six whale lords against each other, and they're all using metronome. It, it's just the battle takes 20 minutes, and the, you can just see the engine is struggling to exist <laughs> under the weight of these this half dozen whale lord pack. So Pokemon Diamond and Pearl was, we talk a lot about the national decks stuff these days. Pokemon Diamond and Pearl was the game that kind of set the standard of being able to move Pokemon ahead. And here's the thing. At the time, it was kind of an unknown whether it would actually work because Nintendo was like, well, well the GBA slot isn't really compatible with the games themselves. We don't know if we can make that work. At the mm -hmm. time, there were no like online apps that you could download. You couldn't upload a Pokemon to the cloud, that kind of thing. But they did manage to make it work, but it was in the most obtuse way possible. You had to upload the Pokemon but you could only select six per day for some reason. <laughs> and you couldn't just be like, oh, now they're in my game. No, you had to go into a field and catch them. Yes, that's right. That was that was really, really obtuse. I think it was because they came up with some kind of workaround where basically they found a way to read it and then duplicate the Pokemon, the, the data in the game so that you could go and catch them. Interesting. I mean, a workaround is a workaround. But that's pretty. That's pretty cool in a, in a strange, archaic way. So some other games. I, I would say that outside of Red and Blue, the the DS games for Pokemon are the most beloved. So there's Diamond and Pearl. Like there's a whole Sinnoh contingent now who grew up with the games who are begging for a Sinnoh remake. There's the Black and White games that a lot of people consider to be the some of the absolute best games in the series. Unova is very popular and is a very popular character. A lot of the most popular Pokemon came out of the Unova region. In fact, I used Volcarona and Hydreigon. Um, it had some of the best sprites as well. It looks Definitely. gorgeous. Yeah, it's a great looking game. For my money, Black 2 and White 2 might be the second best Pokemon game ever made. It had so much wonderful single player content it was so much fun to send my pokemon to hollywood the join <laughs> avenue was utterly brilliant it was the the meta the online meta game was a lot of fun to play it was mm, the peak of pokemon for me personally at least uh and then there was heart gold and soul silver when everybody got the uh the pokemon walker 
Oh, I still have mine. It doesn't work, but it's still there. I didn't like uh, Heart Gold and Soul Silver, though, because as much as I like Gold and Silver, I didn't like what they did with the soundtrack in that game. And it still had the problem of running really slowly in the Diamond and Pearl engine. Yeah, that's true about the slowness. But I, I really did like uh, Heart Gold and Soul Silver, and I loved my Poker Walker. And I remember the stories of people putting theirs in the dryer to, to rack up <laughs> sticks. And they went really well, of course. Anyway, I won't dwell too much longer on Pokemon for the Nintendo DS, but suffice it to say, I would. this was the renaissance of the series. I mm-hmm. feel like the foundation of what we know today uh, as the popularity of Pokemon, yeah, it was built in 1998 with the original Pokemon Mania, but it was solidified on the Nintendo DS. It ensured that it would be around forever and would never go away. Yeah, it was definitely the generation that it became obvious, okay, Pokemon, yes, it was more than a fad for sure by that point, but by that by the DS era, it was definitely a, well, this is sitting next to Mickey Mouse in the pop culture sort of uh, thing. So by this time, the DS Lite is doing really swimmingly, Nadia. It's just, it's selling like crazy. It's beating the PSP. It's cool now. The DS Lite mm-hmm. looks awesome. So many amazing games are coming out for it. It just had a bit of a problem, Nadia. And that problem was piracy. Ooh, yep. It had a it had a such a problem with piracy to the point that everybody, and I mean everybody, laughed at me for buying my games. And I, as the at, like I said at the time, I was the guide for the Nintendo DS uh, at about.com. And, you know, what's good for the game industry is ultimately good for my job. And I don't want to pirate games because, you know, I know as well as anyone how hard it is to create something and not make any money from it. But everyone's like, why do you just not have in this these, what was it, an R4 card? Yeah, why don't you have one of these cards and you can download, like, literally any game you want. And it's... Uh, yeah, and I just sometimes I think about, like, regardless of how successful DS was and how everyone had one, how much revenue Nintendo lost and other publishers lost because of piracy. It had to be a not insignificant number. Yeah, it was a big problem for the Nintendo DS to the point that when the DSi came out, it had some notable restrictions because they were so desperate to basically cut off the flow of R4 cards and flash cards and that kind of thing, including making it so that DSi-specific games were not region-free, which really annoyed the heck out of me. Yeah, that was the start of, for a while, Nintendo was very strict about having their games be uh, region-locked. And uh, I think the Switch is the first time they've eased up in a long time. But yes, the DSi being region-locked became hugely controversial. I remember that. So this is where I confess to have been I was very much a pirate at this time. Gasp. I know. Uh, everybody was doing it. Everybody had an R4 card. Like, literally everybody I knew had yeah, some yeah. version variant where you could play any game you want attached to their DS. I bought an R4 card because not only, not only was I... So I was living in Japan. I didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so that was my way of being able to access a lot of American DS games that Which I wouldn't have been able to... Because when I bought a game, I had to basically buy it in America and have it shipped to my parents' house and ask them to ship it on to me in Japan. Mm. So it was a multi-week wait to be able to get American games over Probably in Japan. not cheap either. No, it was not cheap. 
And I did it sometimes, you know, and I was still, it wasn't like I stopped buying games. In fact, I preferred to buy games because Nintendo was really annoying about finding ways to, annoying, Nintendo <laughs> was constantly finding ways to update the firmware so that uh, you wouldn't be able to pirate a particular game. I remember Phantom Hourglass had, was initially resistant to being pirated, but of course, immediately people found workarounds to get yeah, around past that one. You know, I, I feel bad for the publishers and developers that were hurt. But on the other hand, it was because of piracy that I was able to find I was able to find Super Robot Wars W, which got me into Super Ro- Robot Wars. And as a consequence, the amount of money that I've given Bandai Namco over the years supporting Gundam. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It all evens out in the end, if not more. I repaid that price many times <laughs> over, gosh darn it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, and like, be shame on you for people who have pirated stuff because I have definitely yeah. been there where I've had no money and it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. I mean, I found Fire Emblem because I was playing on an emulator in 2004 in my apartment with no internet. <laughs> Did you ever like download ROMs or like floppy disks? Oh, good times. Well, I definitely did not do that because the ROMs were too big. Even in Nintendo ROM, which was like three, four megs maybe, too much for a floppy disk. I managed a couple. Anyway, so I guess this is where I talk about Super Robot Wars and my quest to catalog every single Super Robot Wars. Super Robot Wars on the DS wasn't actually that great, Nadia. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, are they, was it one of those games where they did not take advantage properly of the secondary screen and made it do some stupid scribbly stuff to justify it being there? Pretty much. I mean, yeah. it was just a map for the most part. Well, that's something at least. I... But I discovered Super Robot Wars W because I was just starting to freelance at this time, and I was assigned to write a giant list of the best anime adaptations to video games for wow. this for this website. And so I did a ton of research, and I discovered this game that keeps getting mentioned is Super Robot Tyson. And I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. I should try it Uh-oh. so that I can actually write about it. And I was immediately enamored with the the sprite-based graphics, uh, the animation, the attention to detail, the music. I I discovered that I really liked this show called Gundam. Uh, <laughs> the Gundams were really cool. Uh, I love the Tekamen. Yeah. And uh, Super Robot Wars W was extremely easy as well. So it, it was a great time. Uh, in hindsight, very broken. Very broken game. <laughs> <laughs> is with the name W it makes me think it's surrounded. It, it's uh, focused around um, uh, Gundam Wing. Is that incorrect or correct? I mean, Gundam Wing is definitely a big part of it. Um, specifically, Endless Waltz. Though, if I recall correctly, the Endless Waltz story only takes place in one specific mission, and then the Wing Boys are just kind of around. Gundam <laughs> Seed is another big one. I think the thing was is that, and justifiably, it was. I did not know this at the time, but Super Robot Wars W just reuses a ton of assets from Judgment, which came out in the GBA. Oh. Hmm. And including series like Gundam Seed. And so a lot of people were like, well, this game's broken and reuses a ton of assets and it's too easy. But I'm like, but it has Voltron. Oh, okay. Well, that, that justifies the price tag right there. Is it like, is it Lion Voltron or that crappy car Voltron? No, the proper Lion Voltron. Okay, good. I just it, the the rumor was that supposedly this was the game that Bandai Namco was hoping could be released in the U.S. Maybe, and uh-huh. because they put in a lot of American friendly series in there, and inclu- right. 
including Gundam Wing, Gundam Seed, Voltron, that kind of thing. But of course, it never happened because who was going to release a Super Robot Wars game in America and go through the the expense of localizing it? Maybe Atlas, but I don't think the OG games sold particularly well. Especially at that time, people were still you know not exactly wary of anime or anything like that, but just it wasn't a, a huge part of pop culture the way it is now. Uh, certainly not. I think anime was exploding, but the kids who would grow up being huge anime fans were still kids. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so Cartoon Network and whatnot were still in the hands of people who were like, what is this crap? But if I, if you believe the stories about how the big O got ousted. But Super Robot Wars K&L were, you know, they were pretty solid and featured some solid, uh, decent graphical upgrades over W. But I don't think anybody would ever call Super, the SRW games on the DS classics. Want to mention one more game. It was one of the first reviews I ever did for 1UP. Uh, Super Robot Wars Endless Frontier. A mm. deeply deeply boring game <laughs> <laughs> that must have been really disappointing it's like wow my first review for one up and it's a series i love oh but it wasn't really it wasn't really a proper super robot wars game it has recognizable units from the original generations but it how do i even describe it it has a lot in common with project cross zone ah now here's the thing i love cross zone but but because it is complete fan crack and whoever localized that game knew exactly what they were doing it has none of that because none of the resident evil stuff or anything appears it's just og units oh that's kind of boring But you got like a cowboy guy and i think cosmos maybe shows up in that game they she shows up in the she shows up everywhere the thing that I found annoying about that game was that the dungeons lasted forever and battles would last even longer, like yeah, 30, 40 right. minutes of just doing the same combos over and over again. Yeah, that's very true of Cross Zone as well. It's like I said, it's all the fan crack. Another game that I discovered while living in Japan, and I don't think I want to dwell on this one too long, but it certainly deserves a mention. The world ends with you. <laughs> oh, of course. Yes, we have covered that in in great detail in previous in episodes. great detail but holy crap game. did i adore that game it and i still love that game i really yes. do because i would walk through shibuya every day on my way to work and i was playing shibuya was my hood it was where i hung out <laughs> most of the time <laughs> so hanging out so playing the world ends with you just uh it I felt very grounded, and whenever I look back on The World Ends With You into that very 2007 vision of Shibuya, I get very nostalgia. Uh, yeah. No, I, I totally understand. It's weird. I've never been to Shibuya, but it, it reminds me a lot of Toronto from just playing Persona 5. I, I really felt it, so I understand it in a strange way. So some other trends that were happening on the Nintendo DS, Nadia. Uh, Square Enix supported the DS in a big way after... Yes kind of making tentative peace with Nintendo on the GBA, porting some Final Fantasy games over. So I think a big one was Dragon Quest 4, 5, and 6 coming out in the U.S. was a big deal. I that think. was a very big deal. That was unprecedented because up until that point, of course, Dragon Quest has never been a humongous success in the West the way Final Fantasy has. Um, we did have some ports of previously released games like i've talked about the game boy color port of dragon quest 3 there was also a game boy color port of dragon quest 1 and 2 and i think dragon quest monsters is the reason why i think square started to get a little or enix started to get a little more uh loose about maybe publishing again in the west because i think that was successful enough that they said okay fine let's give this a try but yes four five and six for the ds were total ground up remakes 
had to invest a lot of money in localization, had to uh, invest a lot of money in, in advertising and all of that. And they're great, amazing ports of great games. Dragon Quest on the Nintendo DS was where I really discovered the series. I think a lot of people did. And I think that's really, it speaks a lot to how good the adaptations were and how important they were. I mean, Dragon Quest V on the Nintendo DS was how you play that game. I actually think Dragon Quest VI on the DS is worse than the SNES version, though. I actually, Dragon Quest VI has never been one of my favorites in any capacity. It's not. I think it's a weak Dragon Quest overall in terms of story, both storytelling and systems. But on the SNES, it had beautiful graphics. And on the DS, it... I mean, it loses that element, I think. It looks worse. Yeah, I will say Dragon Quest VI on the Super Famicom, because of course it didn't come here. Uh, It was one of the best-looking games in the series by far. It was also the first, I think, that gave us animated monsters, and that that was a pretty big deal. And of course you have animated monsters in the DS version, but I do think it is, you're right, maybe a bit of a trade-off. Whereas Dragon Quest V didn't look, wasn't the greatest looking game on the SNES, so it, it actually really did benefit from that glow up on the DS. And of course, I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the whole dang Dragon Quest IX thing, which by the way, Dragon Quest IX is 10 years old this year. It was, I mean, if you want to know how big the DS was by 2006 or thereabouts, I mean, the fact that they put a mainline Dragon Quest on it. Huge, unprecedented. I mean, Dragon Quest was a prestige Cadillac series in Japan. Yes. It was always on the most popular consoles, whether that was the Super Nintendo or the PlayStation or the PlayStation 2. And now here it is on the Nintendo DS. And holy cow, did they court a lot of controversy by making it an action RPG initially. Oh, that did not go over well. Yeah, um, as I recall, the earliest, I actually wrote a whole report about the history of Dragon Quest Nine and, you know, how it shocked the world when it came out. Definitely look that up if you have a chance. But yes, the earliest announcements said this is going to be an action-adventure game. And next time you heard about that game, this is not an action-adventure game anymore. <laughs> no, it was definitely turned menu-based after that. So this is what I want, Nadia. I want a new version of Dragon Quest Nine. I want it on a home console I want all of the social elements. I want the loot elements. I want the turn-based cooperative uh, combat to come back. I want the social dungeon sharing to come back. I want everything, but I want it on the PlayStation 5. Why not the uh, Switch? I would also take it on the Nintendo Switch. I love all of those elements. It was such a clever take on the traditional JRPG, and it was so much fun to be able to play with my friends in a turn-based context. Yeah, this was, if I'm not mistaken, around the same time that Monster Hunter really took off on the PSP, wasn't it? So I could see why Square Enix really pushed the social aspect for, for Dragon Quest IX. And they did a really good job of it. I mean, you remember Patty's Pub, right? That was so much fun to just fill up if you went to a convention or something like that. Like when I went to Otakon and I just met so many friends through the, the people coming through my pub. It was actually a precursor to Street Pass because it, it was that successful. It was a little bit like a hub in Destiny, right? Or an MMORPG hub because you would see everybody in their unique armor. Yes. And with their unique characters. And it was just really neat to go and meet everybody. I, I, I agree with you, Nadia. The The initial precursor version of Street Pass was a very clever touch with Dragon Quest. And it was super fun to rock around in Japan when everybody, where you could get just a billion Patty's Pub things. 
Yeah, of course, it was harder to do that here. Like I said, you really had to go to a convention or something. But when you did, like, it was great because you also got treasure maps. Yes, the treasure maps were a great way to do it. There was a Dragon Quest cafe that I went to with Parrish. Where you oh, could I went get there. a special treasure map. Oh, I didn't get that. No, I couldn't have gotten that. Yeah. But I did go to the Dragon Quest Cafe when I previewed uh, Dragon Quest Eleven, And I was just, I still have, I'm looking at them right now. They gave me a stack of the coasters that they use there. They have the Dragon Quest monsters on them. I ranted about grinding, but it was actually pretty fun to just chill with friends and grind metal slimes in one of the treasure maps. Oh, yeah. Freaking metal slimes. They will always be the death of me. When I die, it'll say on my headstone, here lies Nadia. She blew a gasket trying to go after a metal slime. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, there are so many amazing RPGs that came out, Nadia. I want to highlight one that is a little bit lesser known, and that is Valkyrie Profile Covenant of the Plume, which was the last mainline Valkyrie Profile game that came out. And unlike Valkyrie Profile, Silmaria was much more in line with the original Valkyrie Profile in the way that it handled its uh, systems. Except that it was a tactics RPG. Tactics RPGs, there are a lot of them on the Nintendo <laughs> DS. There certainly are. From Final Fantasy Tactics A2, which not super popular, but it sure was a game, to SMT Devil Survivor, which was actually very popular and very, very good, to Rondo of Swords. But Valkyrie Profile Covenant in the Plume, not an amazing game, very short in a lot of respects. But it did have one thing that stood out, and that was... So it gave you this feather, right? Mm -hmm. And if you use this feather, it would turn a party member of your choice really strong. Cool. But they would die at the end of the level. That was that was the price, and you would lose them forever. Oh, that sucks. Imagine getting chosen by the cursed plume. So it seems like you have to make really tough decisions. Here's the kicker. Don't use the plume at all, or else you're not going to get the good ending. Oh, it's one of those, is it? Yes. I don't really think that it's a great mechanic because they give you, I guess they almost treat it like a temptation. Like, here, here's a super powerful thing that's going to get you out of trouble. But if you use it, you're going to get the bad ending. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to use it then because even if I win, then what's the point? Do they tell you it like right up front? Hey, if you use this, you're going to get the crap ending? No. So everybody okay. is going to use it a whole bunch initially. Uh, be like, well, goodbye person and then at the end they're like haha you lose <laughs> you get that like maybe you're the real monster ending and i think if you use it enough um freya will just show up and kill you <laughs> okay that's kind of cool actually <laughs> goddess of love just icing you because you didn't like just keep killing people <laughs> but it feels like a real successor to valkyrie profile i think it was happening roughly concurrently with the original game and the main character treats Leneth as like a villain. So it was kind of cool. And is being taken advantage of by Queen Hell. So it was a, a cool alternate perspective game in Valkyrie Profile series. And I wish that they would kind of revisit those concepts. Ah, Valkyrie Profile, uh -huh. come back to me. Someday, someday. Someday I'm going uh, later this year. So it's the 20th anniversary, Nadia. Oh, wow. I'm going to do a, a super retrospective on Valkyrie Profile. Go for it. Uh, I'm going to do it on US Game. We're going to do it on Axe of the Blood God because whatever. I'm just, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, damn right. You can do whatever you want. Uh, I also want to highlight Infinite Space, which is criminally underappreciated, and I want them to make a new one. Infinite Space? I don't think I played that one. That was the one where you're playing as spaceships in turn-based combat, 
and they somehow managed to cram in spaceship combat, a story with epic sweep. You could customize the spaceships and build a fleet out of them, and it had away missions as well. It was crazy. And Ah. all of that on top of kind of a visual novel structure. Okay, yeah, I think you might have mentioned it before. Nani, are there any other RPGs that you want to highlight as kind of notable, interesting, worth people paying attention to? Uh, Final Fantasy IV, the adaptation, is very, very interesting because it will it is designed to destroy you if you are a Final Fantasy IV fan. People come up to me and they say, Nadia, which version of Final Fantasy IV should I play? And they say, should I do the DS one? And I say, no, not unless you play the original first because Final Fantasy IV for the DS was designed by Satan. And Satan wants you to know that he knows all the tricks for the game. He knows every boss's weakness. He knows every secret passage he knows every trap and he's just going to turn them all on your head because haha you thought you were clever didn't you it's a good game and good adaptation a lot of people make fun of the really really flowery cheesy dialogue but apparently that's according to i think clyde mandelin translator said that's actually the closest translation there is of the original game i really enjoyed it for what it was even though i think by the time i got to the moon i said you know what this game hates me i i I don't want to spend time with with such a, a hater i'm i'm ditching damn red dragons everywhere great game though with both final fantasy 3 and 4 i was super turned off by the 2.5d graphics and so i did not play it it had like it had full 3d graphics just really low res polygon (laughs) graphics it wasn't quite 2.5d was it uh i mean sorry not 2.5d it was fully 3d and it was ugly (laughs) yeah i will say that it's not the greatest looking games on the ds or any system um of course, the PSP, as I sorry, yeah, PSP, as I have said many times, got the complete collection of Final Fantasy IV, which I do recommend wholeheartedly, and does look pretty great. But uh, Final Fantasy IV for the DS is for nerds only, myself included. Final Fantasy III on the DS, it is so strange how we cannot get any version of three except for that one here in the or US. the heck out of me. It's so yeah. dated now. Holy it's crap! It's very, very dated. I when I was playing it. First of all, I'm not huge into the job systems to begin with. Second of all, I'm like, well, why not just play? Why not just play? The blood god does not approve. The job eh. system is sec- is holy. Well, like, you don't diss the job cool. system. Either way, like in Final Fantasy, playing Final Fantasy three, it's like, why not just play Final Fantasy five? Because yes, I might not be like, you know, the greatest job stand in the world, but I do totally acknowledge how wonderfully Final Fantasy five does all that. Is Why waste my time on three? Cat and Nadia disagree segment. Dun dun dun. <laughs> do it. Do I need a drop right here? Just Apparently to signal that we're doing an audio drop. It's like Cat Nadia disagree. We oh, disagree. Yeah. Dun, dun, Nadia, dun. the job system is holy. You can't diss it. Sure, I can. I mean, I don't diss it. It's just not my jam. Why not? Because it's a lot of responsibility. Okay, we're going to come back to this, and we're going to probably <laughs> discuss this at some length when Bravely Default comes around, or maybe when yes. we're talking about Final Fantasy X-2 on the PlayStation 2, but okay. So yeah, Final Fantasy three. you're not big into the job system, continue. Uh, it's also quite ugly, as you said. And very boring. It is kind of boring. Final very Fantasy grindy. III, it's not a story-based game. Not I don't, at all. I don't recall a damn thing about the story. I know there were four orphans. That's all I can tell you. Okay, Nadia, there are so many... RPGs on the DS, many of which we have talked about at some length. We've talked about Strange Journey at length in previous episodes. We've talked about Radiant Historia yes. in, at length in previous episodes. We've even talked about Sonic Chronicles, The Dark Brotherhood, <laughs> probably the weirdest and most begotten <laughs> RPG ever made. Oh, that's such a strange, weird, bad 
RPG, the soundtrack is legendarily bad. Like you can, I cannot believe what I was hearing when I haven't played it, but I did watch a playthrough of it, and I, I was just suffering. I was suffering and bleeding the whole time through. Sonic Chronicles: The Dark Brotherhood, i.e., that one time Bioware decided to make a Sonic RPG for some reason. Oh god! And the sad part is at the how peak excited. of their powers too. Yeah. Like, why? And everyone was so well. Everyone was so excited about this. Like, wow! If Mario can have an RPG, imagine Sonic having a Bioware RPG. This is going to be great. And then it sucked. What's funny is that Sonic was actually really awesome on the Nintendo DS. Like on yes. on the whole, the Sonic Rush games were so good. Yeah, when Sonic was having a really bad time in the 3D space, he was actually doing really well in the 2D space with uh, the Advanced series and the uh, Rush series. So when you look back on the Nintendo DS, Nadia, what do you think its legacy is? Uh, that one system every damn person had before the Wii U came, before the Wii came out. Because, yes, like all of my friends just had the DS, and these were friends who weren't huge into games. They just... You know, carried around the DS. They they carried around uh, Animal Crossing. Really made its mark on the DS with Wild World, uh, and God, we can see where that wound up. Uh, years later, with 22 million sold of uh, New Horizons. Uh, so I think that is its legacy to me. The the fact that everyone had one, had some really good RPGs. Some developers tried to experiment with that second screen. Some of them succeeded really well, like with Etrian Odyssey. Some of them less so, like the, uh, I don't know if you ever played Dawn of Sorrow, when you had to, like, draw glyphs to access boss rooms, it was terrible. Yeah, it's a, it was a, it was a really high point for Nintendo when they really needed a high point. It was also a refuge for Japanese developers who were yes. really struggling at this time with the PlayStation 3 and whatnot. Yeah, we didn't mention that, but yes, it absolutely was, and that's, of course, the chief reason why Dragon Quest IX went to the DS uh, you're right, PlayStation 3 was having a hard time finding its spot. The Wii um, didn't have a great attach rate, people discovered quite quickly. Of course, the Xbox 360 was a, a we'll non-starter. We'll get to this, but the Wii has a more robust library than you remember. Oh, it has a, it has a good library, but like uh, these great games that came out, they had a real problem people buying them. <laughs> that was the problem. Yeah, when I was living in Japan... I, no joke, was playing the PlayStation 2 and Nintendo DS almost exclusively until 2009. Because that was what was, I was pretty much steeped in what was ever, whatever was coming out in Japan at that time. I wasn't paying any attention to North American games. Right, of course. And when they came out, and so, and everything was still coming out on the PS2. I was still buying PS2 games in 2009. You wow, know? good for you. I was still, I was buying DS games by the boatload. The DS was my main console by a long shot when I was living in Japan. And it just felt like all of the best creative output from a lot of my favorite series uh, from, well, I discovered Dragon Quest, but also Castlevania and other games, mm -hmm. uh, the SMT games. There was, It was all DS. It was not on any major console. The consoles of that generation were a little bit uh, uh, not so great for RPGs, but the DS was there to really pick up the slack. And Square Enix was hitting a lull at this time around too. So, and... You look at the DS and you see a game like The World Ends With You, which was a kind of a shining light at a very dark time mm -hmm. for Square Enix, which was dealing with making bad games like Last Remnant, which is a bad game. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yeah. why everybody got in their head that that game is good. It's not good. Brainwashing. <laughs> and The World Ends With You sadly did not sell well, but that's Oh, I didn't story. know that. I thought maybe it sold decently. Yeah, but Nintendo DS, an amazing console 
system. And actually, I still have a whole box full of old DS cards that I'm probably never going to get rid of because same. honestly, those are games that A, still hold up really well, uh, can still be played on the 3DS, which I do periodically. And they can't really easily be ported to a lot of different systems because so many of them use that dual screen thing, like Etrian Odyssey, right? Right. Where, you know, that is a DS franchise. Yes, absolutely. DS, 3DS, uh, as we see with the Switch, who knows what's going on there. We rem- And it also had the best version of Chrono Trigger. Yes, you're right. Um, it had a version of Chrono Trigger that had uh, not really a, a massive retranslation, but it kind of spiff up the old one a little bit, fix some errors. Uh, it had the extra content, which was pretty interesting. It did have the attempts to connect the game to Chrono Cross, which was less... But if you had the time and the power, like going after the Dream Devourer was, whoa, that was a hell of an undertaking. Yeah, if I looked just through this list and see the games that some of these games ended up making it to the Nintendo 3DS, like Radiant Historia made it to the 3DS, and uh, The World Ends With You made it to Nintendo Switch. But I'm seeing games on here like SMT Strange Journey and Infinite Space and Dragon Quest IX, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Really good games that certainly deserve your attention. So many good Etrian Odyssey games. Yeah, uh, the 3DS, a, a and I, I'm sure we'll get to this, but the 3DS and the DS sort of have a symbiotic relationship in a lot of Definitely. ways. The DS, yeah. it feels like the 3DS library is bolstered heavily by the DS library. But yeah, great console. It was. It was really. It, it was definitely one of my favorites. And looking back at the history of RPGs, it was a. It was a refuge. That thing really stayed with me for a very long time. I still have my old DS Lite, but the power switch is broken now. How do you break a power switch? I don't know. It just doesn't turn on properly. <laughs> but I play all of it my quits. old DS games on my, my 3DS these days. Yeah. I'm glad the backwards compatibility is there. All right. That is the console RPG quest for the Nintendo DS. Truly a legendary console. One of the most important Nintendo consoles for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, a true mega hit that sold an outrageous number of units and lasted and honestly changed their business, put the Game Boy to bed once and for all. The next entry in the console RPG quest is going to be its direct rival, the PlayStation Portable. Oh, that should be interesting. Which is going to be looking at the other side of the divide at a system that actually was very successful in its own way, just maybe not in North America. And I have a lot of actually fond memories about the PSP. So it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to talk about that one. That would have been interesting to be living in Japan and seeing like what the PSP was like over there versus here. Here it was you'd maybe see one once in a while on a plane or a train, but I can imagine Japan is so much different. It was everywhere, especially when new Monster Hunter games came out. Yeah. I I'll probably talk about this more on the console RPG quest for the PSP, but I just remember uh hordes of uh high school kids hanging out playing multicolored PSPs uh, at McDonald's or whatever. <laughs> nice. Free wine. No, or, or malls. They were just everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> little groups of kids just in a little conclaves just playing away. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the track of the week. All right, Nadia, every single week we listen to a track from a classic RPG, and it's usually... Uh, theme appropriate and this one is would you be surprised from a nintendo ds game see if you recognize this song
Yeah, Nadia, I tossed in a track from Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, which actually has one of my favorite soundtracks from a Pokemon game. It is the final battle music for the champion. It's from my favorite champion. It's Cynthia. Are you familiar with Cynthia? Cynthia, is she the one with the guitar? No, she's the one with Damn. the super long blonde hair and the Garchomp. Sewer oh, shark. okay. <laughs> you say sewer shark? That's what he looks like. He's just land shark. Land shark, yeah. Okay. But he looks like the design wouldn't be out of place from a show like Sewer Sharks or something. It's it's it. I I made fun of Garchomp a lot back in the Diamond and Pearl era. <laughs> yeah, Garchomp's pretty cool though. Like, have you seen the betas? The betas for what he's supposed to look like? No, I haven't. Because of course, with the Nintendo Giga leak, there's a lot of Pokemon beta stuff coming out, and he's actually very very cute. I think he's like kind of red and orange instead of whatever the hell he ended up as. I did not like Garchomp at the time. I named him one of the lamest Pokemon when I did a top five lamest Pokemon. Oh no! One up. Yep. Uh, he was even. He was so controversial because he was so overpowered that he was actually banned in <laughs> the Smaga metagame. Because he I centralized to things too much. Dragons were really OP in the Diamond and Pearl days. Yes, they absolutely. That's why they came up with the Fairy class. If I'm not mistaken, because dragons just kind of grew out of control. <laughs> Yeah, they really did. But you know what? I kind of liked them being completely out of control. Oh, me too. They're dragons, people. Yeah, they're, they're supposed to wreck things. They're supposed I, to wreck things. I've been playing a lot of Sword and Shield lately, and I put a, a choice scarf on a high dragon, and he really messes things up. I forget what choice scarf does. It dramatically increases their speed. Okay, yes, but that will they can only use everything. one move at a time. <laughs> like that matters. But so some of the notes that I wrote about this particular track, Nadia... I really mm -hmm. like the music in Pokemon Diamond and Pearl. It has a darkness yes. that you don't hear in a lot. It when you first turn it on, it has it starts on a minor key, which I find really interesting. Um, it's certainly a big difference from the GBA version. The color palette is a lot more muted, and but also when you're riding around in Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, there's a lot of piano. And yes, I think we've called out piano as kind of a what's the word cliche in an rpg for a handheld console but it works really well in pokemon diamond and pearl i really like it yeah i'm a sucker for a good piano in you know cliche or not in an rpg uh, of course it has to be played well um although if i were to highlight my favorite pokemon ds song in this little segment i'd go with uh veil city i love the song there oh the Veilstone city music sorry drift veil city or Drifail. I, I yeah. can never keep track of them. <laughs> yeah, it just has this real, like, hard-going, what-the-hell-are-you-doing-here, kid sort of sound. <laughs> sort of sound, Because it is like a, a port town, as I recall, and you kind of associate a port town with grungy, gritty places where kids shouldn't be, and you definitely get that impression when you listen to that. I like this music because A, is complicated, or it keeps going. It has a lot of different uh, sections, and it also really encapsulates i feel the energy and the style of the diamond and pearl soundtrack where it's kind of interestingly in a little bit of a minor key it but at, but it's also really energetic uh there's mm -hmm. a lot of contradictions in this particular song yeah that's a good way of describing it just uh, with the contradictions and thinking about it now i'm thinking about pokemon songs that are in a minor key uh i suppose lavender town counts mm. but there aren't too many out there and lavender town is somber <laughs> Lavender Town is something else. I still love that song. That tinny Game Boy trip tune. They actually had a really good remix of it in uh, Let's Go Pikachu and Let's Go Eevee. 
but it was composed by and arranged by Go Ichinose. Um, a lot of people worked on the Diamond and Pearl soundtrack, but he did the bulk of the work on this one, and he's been around since, or and Go Ichinose has been around since Ruby and Sapphire, Diamond and Pearl, Black 2, White 2. Uh, not coincidentally, some of the best music in the series no, <laughs> there you were go. in all of these games. And uh, he returned for Sun and Moon, didn't he? Uh, yes, they did, in fact, return for Pokemon Sun and Moon. They were absent for Pokemon X and Y, which, oh, interesting. X and Y had one of the worst soundtracks in the series. Really? I I will stand here and defend at least the gym battle theme for that song, for that I don't remember series. it at all. It's just not memorable at all. Oh, it's techno. I mean, come on. I'm, I actually really like the gym theme for Diamond and Pearl because, again, it has this weird dark element to it. Like, it's almost too intense for a Diamond and Pearl game. Well, it's Hokkaido. Everybody's very cold and very ty- and very depressed. I, mean, I guess I can associate with that being Canadian. Anyway, that is the track of the week. Please, uh, we'll be back next week with another track of the week. Um, and if you want to submit one, please send one, and we will uh, consider adding it. Okay, let's do the mailbag. Uh, we only got one this week, Nadia. Um, so you weren't here last week because you were no. on vacation. Yes, but we were talking about. What we want from the next generation of RPGs. And I think we had a really good conversation about RPGs this gen, RPGs, what they could look like in the next few years. Um, and one of the things I brought up was this notion of kind of having AI-driven RPGs that and super reactive worlds where quests could be sort of spun up on the fly in cool. really interesting ways that react to your choices. That is cool. I like that. Um, and Kyle Latino says... Cat mentions the idea of AI being used to curate or DM the player experience more. It reminds me of AI Dungeon, which is a text parser game in the style of Zork that uses machine learning to generate console text for the player. You can type whatever you want. I eat the dungeon. I shoot God in the face. And the AI will make it happen and try to integrate it into the story. It is basically a novelty at the moment, but it gestures at how AI could react to what the player is doing in the game. For instance, I can imagine this sort of thing might help NPC guards have more to say than just, welcome to town name. (laughs) Stop right there, criminal scum. All right. Thanks to Kyle Latino for submitting the comment. And that's really exciting. I'm going to have to check this out. Yeah, I do find that exciting, even though it takes us one step closer to the Maverick takeover. Well, I mean, you would welcome the Maverick takeover, right? Because that would mean that we'd get to live in Mega Man X universe rather than the blighted hellscape that we currently inhabit. Yeah, there is that, but the problem is the Mega Man X universe. Uh, there is a direct attempt to kill humanity, which uh, maybe we'll get there in this particular um, in this particular timeline. But well, there's humanity a more... needs some good killing right now. <laughs> I'd like to stay alive if I can. If I can. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I'll I'll accept that. <laughs> I for one welcome our new machine overlords. Come on in, Mavericks. And I for one welcome our new insect overlords. That's such a great bit. All right, that's the end of Acts of the Blog. I will be back next week, as always. If you want to follow Nadia and I on Twitter or other social medias, I'm at the underscore Catbot, and Nadia's at Nadia Oxford, and my Twitch channel is Cat Bailey TV. I stream every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We'll be back next week with another brand new RPG conversation. I have no idea what it's going to be about, 
who knows maybe we'll talk we'll keep doing the console rpg quest maybe because we've kind of hit that lull in the schedule where rpgs aren't coming out quite as thick and fast as they were but until next time for Nani and myself thanks for listening and happy adventuring <laughs>